If I could sum up everything I've learned from battling depression and anxiety for years, it would boil down to one thing. You are not alone. You see, so many of us are tormented by the insane idea that we're separate, disconnected beings, suffering all by our little lonesome selves. And I say this from experience. Then I began to open up and share my story. And voila, people showed up to tell me they were struggling too, or even more inspiring, that they had once struggled and since triumphed over their struggle. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or overwhelmed, that's why it's important to open up and share your story. Which is why I'm proud to be sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is here to help you. They offer licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. You can talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your own convenience. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a the therapist in under 48 hours. From there, you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is completely confidential. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge, anytime. So don't wait. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month today at betterhelp.com ddbn. That's betterhelp.com ddbn. Toxic masculinity is a concept used to define unhealthy and often traditional characteristics or attributes associated with men. From being unemotional and power hungry to narcissistic and violent, men are oftentimes defined by these outdated and unfounded stereotypes which create an unhealthy and unrealistic understanding of what it means to be a man in today's society. Assuming men should be protectors, breadwinners, or leaders, or associating men with anger, selfishness, and aggression can be problematic and damaging. Today's story is all about the impact that mindset can have on an individual, but more importantly, the impact this can have on the loved ones we are surrounded by. I'm your host, JD, and this is What's Your Story?
When those beliefs are based on unproven biases that we as both individuals and a society perpetuate, boys and men are taught to falsely believe them or to try to measure up to them, ultimately harming themselves and others in the process. In many ways, manhood, like womanhood, comes with many expectations in the United States. As a society, we value kindness, compassion, and care in women more than we do in men. We also positively associate men with being protective and negatively associate men with being emotional. Now, this doesn't mean that men aren't caring, compassionate, or emotional, but we, as a society, don't value these traits in men, and that can lead men to believe these traits just simply aren't valuable. Men tend to keep so much bottled up inside. This includes all the traumas and heartbreaking moments. Eventually, there has to be a release. And too often, it's in an explosive way. Fragile masculinity is a term that we use to refer to the unrealistic cultural standards placed on men. And it exists because many men feel they have to overcompensate or act in a certain way to meet these traditional standards. But we're all human. And as human beings, regardless of gender or how we identify ourselves, we have a combination of masculine and feminine traits. And while feminism has pushed America to redefine and reconsider the role of girls and women, it has also raised questions about boys and men and what their role is in society. Rather than defining boys or men as good or bad or tough or weak, it's important to recognize that men, like women, have many facets that extend far beyond the traditional roles of their gender. Growing up, when I was, you know, as a young man, uh, when everybody talked about mental illness or mental health matters, you know, uh, it was always kind of portrayed as uh, the crazy person locked away in the room with the padded vest and the padded room and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, that's really an unfortunate comparison because you grow up with this ideal that that this is something that just shouldn't be that, that if you have a, uh, some type of mental uh, instability, uh, if you have a chemical imbalance or you have, which is something you can't control. If you have, uh, life has, has done different things to you along the way. The thing, again, things that you can't control have, a, yeah, have affected you. You automatically assume that you're broken and un, unusable and unworthy because life around us has told us that, you know, in the movies that we see, the television shows that we see, when people are crazy, you know, they're they're ostracized, they're kind of pushed away. Uh, I think in the last probably 10 to 15 years, there's been a nicer push within the media to acknowledge and normalize uh, the need for mental health matters. And I think that's a good thing. But I also think that growing up, it made it a lot more difficult for me to understand and acknowledge that I had some things going on and that uh, although uh, at the time it wasn't chemically imbalanced or anything along those lines, there was things that life was presenting to me uh, with my father and my mother getting a divorce, my father moving away to California, um, you know, and, I, and I've talked to this, told the story to, to a few other people, but, you know, at, at, when my father moved away, uh, at six years old, you don't understand that there, you know, what the difference is between uh, a half brother and a half sister and, you know, and, and you, you just know that's your brother and your sister. And so I grew up in a house with four other siblings. I was the baby of five, as far as I knew. And 
when he moved away to California, I lived in Michigan. When he moved away, he took my brother and my sisters with him. And uh, so when that happened, you know, all I knew is that I wasn't taken along with him. And that that alone and adds a whole nother level. That's right? kind of hard for a young man to wrap yeah. his head around because now you're trying to understand why you're the unwanted one. What is what was bad about you? What was not good about you? And so it makes it difficult for you to kind of wrap your head sure. around some of those things. And I'm, I, I, and you start viewing yourself in a different light. And then you start viewing yourself as, well, if I'm unwanted, am I ostracized like these people that I see in the movies and different things? What our society needs to remember is that being a man doesn't mean you have to like sports or women. Being a strong man doesn't mean you can't show weakness or cry. Being a successful man doesn't mean you have to marry or become a, an executive. Sexual preferences and gender identities, just like career choices and life choices, don't make you any less of a man or a human being. When men actively avoid vulnerability, act on homophobic beliefs, ignore personal traumas, or exhibit prejudiced behaviors against women, this contributes to many larger societal problems, such as gender-based violence, sexual assault, and gun violence. Unfortunately, many men aren't taught how to be vulnerable, how to overcome trauma, or how to embrace every aspect of themselves. Take Aaron Hernandez, for instance, who battled numerous traumas in his childhood and ultimately grew up to become a professional football player and a larger-than-life man. He ended up in prison, convicted of murder, and ultimately committed suicide. Society often puts pressure on men to be, quote, men in the traditional sense, rather than simply be human. For men, vulnerability is often neglected, dismissed, or combated. When men push down emotions, ignore feelings, or dismiss their feminine traits, their mental health will suffer. But it, it makes you get to a point where you want to try and figure out what's wrong with you, why you're unwanted, why somebody felt that you were unneeded, unnecessary. And that gets kind of hard because, you know, then you have uh, all these issues of self-worth that you grow up with. You know, am I worthy of of being wanted or desired? You know, why do, why do people that I care about walk away from me? Um, you know, things along those lines. And it, it causes those types of questions. And that's something that, that carries on uh, into other things. Uh, you know, it carries on to other relationships. It carries on into your friendships. It carries on into your personal relationships between um, me and, you know, my wife. It carries on to me and my children. And, you know, not that that the they've ever had to bear the burden or the brunt of it. And I certainly hope that I've never uh, put that on, on their lap and forced them to deal with it. But it's something you pay attention to because it's, it's part of your psyche now. And so growing up, that made me a very unhappy young man. I tried my best to hide it and to pretend that everything was okay and that I was all right. And that I did not need uh, the, um, relationship with my natural father or that I was 
wasn't hurt by the fact that my natural father uh, clearly was not interested in having a relationship with me. And so over time, that becomes, again, something you have to learn how to bear the burden of. And I never really did. I never really understood how or why uh, all those things were happening and and um, really how that was supposed to affect me moving forward. So uh, yeah, I think it was from there, golly, I think I was probably uh, 13, 14 when my natural uh, father allowed my stepfather to adopt me and um and, and the simple fact that he didn't know how old I was you know he and when I asked him what his feelings were because I was expecting him to make this bold proclamation of hey you're my son um you're not taking somebody else's last name you're not going to be somebody else's son you're my son because that's what I would do for my own boys you know I I wouldn't be okay with um my son's you know being taken care of by somebody else. So I think that it's, for me, it was just, it was very telling that he wasn't interested in me. And that was another blow uh, uh, to my already low vision of myself, my already low feeling of self-worth. As of 2018, significantly more men than women died from an opioid overdose. Men are far more likely to die by suicide than women. Men, like women, experience anxiety, depression, and mental illness. However, men are more likely than women to underutilize mental health services, and they are more reluctant to seek help, especially when it comes to their mental health. As a country, we often fail to address the many traumas faced by boys and men, and we often punish behaviors without addressing the underlying issues that lead to those behaviors. We need to eliminate the stigma around mental illness entirely and remind men that asking for help, expressing emotions, and seeking therapy isn't just beneficial, it's necessary for the betterment of our society. Because if I'm speaking from experience, most men are simply just in survival mode. The the level of anxiety that gives you as far as like, uh, you know, families breaking apart, you know, I, I think you kind of said it that we, you know, you don't, you don't really address that as like mental health. I don't even know, you know, looking at like today and now, I think we do a much better job. Like you mentioned in the past, like 10, Mm -hmm. 15 years of saying, Hey, that might emotionally and mentally impact the child. Um, Right. But I still think we kind of forget it that like, you know, it's almost like you look at the child, like, you okay. Dad's gone, but you know, we still love you. And then you forget that, just like anything else, you know, that goes along with, you know, an, an impact an adult that it's right. That healing right. is not, not linear, you know, no. it may not be healed today or tomorrow. No. And I, and I think in a lot of ways we expect kids just to kind of suck it up, you know, buckle we up do. and, and, we and do. move forward. Uh, we expect them to be able to handle something that we as adults are not quite capable Can't. of handling. Yeah. You know, we're expecting them to uh, suck it up and, you know, buckle it down and move forward. When as adults, when a family breaks apart, it uh, has a mental and emotional impact, it's a huge on, impact on, right? Yeah, absolutely. On, on both parties, uh, no matter who's to blame or if nobody's to blame, it, it still has right. an impact. So, 
you know, but then for, as kids, you know, you also you start wondering, okay, was it something that I did? It was was I part of the reason? Was is that why Dad left and moved across country? Because clearly he didn't want me, he didn't take me, so maybe I was the problem. He's trying to get away yeah. from me. Um, you know, and, and those then, questions are kind of kind of smaller, you know, when it when you're younger and it happens mm-hmm. to you, and then maybe they get answered, maybe they don't, but they just kind of kind of escalate more and more and grow more and more, you know, as a, a deeper question as you get older um, yeah, absolutely. or if you're older when it happens and then you really start doubting yourself. So, yeah, because, you know, as, as you grow into your, your teen years, uh, you, you already have this base, at least for me, I already had this base of, of self-doubt and a, a lower value of self-worth of how I viewed myself and and everything. And so if anything questionable happened, it was because I wasn't good enough at it. And I wasn't, I wasn't worthy to have something good or something nice just because of the way that, that those things had already been layered in my brain. So, um, you know, because of past experiences. Uh, so, you know, you, you, you move forward from being a teenager. I, you know, I got married early in my twenties and, um, you know, it made me very, and unfortunately for my wife, it made me, I was still an angry young man. I was still bitter about a lot of things and, and it made me kind of cynical. I'm a sarcastic person by nature, but, <laughs> uh, but it made me cynical and, and it, sometimes it made me nasty. I have always yeah. said that my wife is a saint and she deserves a, a crown of sainthood for putting up with me for the first couple of years of our marriage. We've been married for almost 25 years now, but the first couple of years, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have blamed her if she was like, you know what, enough of this crap. I'm out of here. Because, because, I mean, at that age for anybody, no matter what you go through, I mean, your your brain doesn't kind of hardwire everything really until almost 24, 25. Right. Um, you know, it's obviously a little bit more settled down, but um, that's hard for anybody. Um, so sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and we had uh, some family issues, not, not us personally, not my wife and I. I mean, we had issues, but, you know, it was... It was, I say we loosely, it was me. I had issues and I honestly, I should have been in therapy. And when I was a teenager, I should have been in therapy when my wife and I first got married and dealing with some of these things. But I was also the social stigma attached to the idea of therapy therapy, that I wanted to be so far removed from it because that was just another thing that was going to label me as, as something that was not as valuable, right. something that didn't have the same worth as, as somebody else. So yeah, whatever it came to, whatever it had to do with the topic of therapy. I mean, if it was therapy was off to the right, I was as far left as I could get. Or left as person. possible. Yeah. Yeah. Cause then at that point, I mean, it's, it's certainly, you know, dialed it back 15, 20 years ago. Like that's like, you're definitely something's, something's the matter with you. And right. Then, you know, as taboo as it is now, it's like even more taboo than you might as well just be, you know, wearing the scarlet letter at that point. Right. Exactly. And well, and as a young man, you want to think that you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof, Sure. you know, and to admit that you have a shortcoming is hard to do. And so you, you don't take it in stride like you should when somebody says, Hey, have you, are you talking to somebody about this? Do you see and automatically? Why? What's wrong with me? Is there something yeah. wrong with me? And it almost becomes like a defensive stance and an argument. Absolutely. Because, you know, instead I of, do seeing, I can do this all by myself. I don't need exactly. Anybody. I don't need any help. I can't tell you how many times I said that. I don't need somebody. 
I don't need to lay on somebody's couch for them to tell me what's wrong with me. I know what's wrong with me. I'll be fine. <laughs> and when I, and, and you know, uh, when everybody, somebody tells you I'm fine, they're not fine. That's they're the not biggest fine. lie. They're absolutely not. No, it's the biggest lie we tell ourselves and we tell all, all the ones that we love. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, you know, it's the, my wife has made the acronym. We should, we, so we're not allowed to say we're fine in our house anymore. Um, <laughs> My wife has the Ackerman uh, feelings inside not expressed. Not That's expressed. what fine. I means. like that. And so, uh, in doing so, uh, if we say we're fine, that means something we're not fine, and that we then have to promptly tell her what's going on because she's what's not going, going to on? rest. How long? <laughs> Just out of curiosity, because since that's something that's something that's like so embedded, I feel for people. How and maybe it still is that way. How long did it take for you to just? start to say it and go, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say this. I'm just going to go ahead and tell her how I actually feel. Oh, I'm stubborn. So it took years. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I'd like to say that, you know, we wrapped it up all with a pretty bow and everything was fine and no big deal. And look how great everything is, but (laughs) I'm stubborn. I'm a stubborn Irishman. And, you know, I just, I can't at times just, (laughs) <laughs> be like, well, that's the way we're going to do it. Well, okay, okay, you, you know. Now, so I had to. I've had to learn my entire life uh, that it's not my way or the highway, and I don't always have to do things the difficult way. When we treat boys as men and teach them to be emotionless, tough, and secure, we strip them of their innocence and we place unrealistic and unhealthy expectations on them. In both our education system and at home, we need to help boys and men label their feelings and understand them. By approaching this in a non-judgmental, curious way, we can eliminate the fears surrounding therapy and mental health. We need men to be role models for the new generation. And it all starts with teaching boys to not be men, but to be humans. This should not be a gender issue. And once we make this a human issue, toxic masculinity, in my opinion, will fade. Because toxic masculinity is something that still needs to be addressed. And the only way to help men learn that emotions don't devalue them or make them weak is by instilling that mindset within them from a young age. The dangers of toxic masculinity are clear. And as a society, it's important to remember that everyone is human. And finding healthy ways to process emotions is important for all of us. And sometimes that's been good for me. Sometimes it's been a challenge. Sometimes not, me. right? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes there's, and I say challenge loosely. It's more of, a, it's been a problem. It's been a problem. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, but like I said, early on in my twenties, I probably should have been in therapy. And then if you fast forward into my thirties, my mid thirties, I, I realized that I had a heart condition and, I had a, a severe case of, uh, oh goodness, no, I can't even, arrhythmia. There it is. Holy crap, my brain go. went blank. Yeah, <laughs> I had a severe case of arrhythmia. I, it started off very light. Uh, my heart would jump out of sinus rhythm um, once every couple months. It, it started off as once every couple years, then it was once every couple months. Then it was once every couple weeks. Dang. And at the end, the last year, right before my heart procedure, I had my heart chemically stopped and restarted six times. Oh, gosh. And uh, 
I was at the point where my heart was beating out of sinus rhythm uh, 15 to 20 times a day, anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour at a time. And what, um, what, what started that? Like, how did you, how did you realize, I mean, other than the physical, like, man, like manifestations of that, especially when you say that it, in the beginning, it was like once a year, like, how do you know, how do you know that that's something that's not just, uh, I'm having a moment where I'm stressed out or, you know, I'm just, I'm having a hard time breathing. Like what, what triggered in you to make you feel like this is kind of something that's a little bit more serious. <laughs> so um, the real, the, I mean, it, it always kind of happened, you know, here and there as a kid and I was like, oh yeah, no big deal. I, I can remember far back as my early teens, maybe preteens having an issue where I could feel my heart flutter and I thought, eh, no big deal. Cause it only happened every once in a great, great while. So I, again, being 10 foot tall and bulletproof, never really paid attention to it. Right. Uh, but let's see, I was in my early thirties. And I decided one, uh, it was either Sunday night or Monday night. I don't, I don't remember, but I was watching late night football, you know, either Sunday night football or Monday night football on, on television. And it was two teams I didn't care about, but it was football and the kids were in bed and my wife had gone off to bed. The house was quiet <laughs> and I was just enjoying, a, you know, enjoying the quiet time. Yeah. Right. Quiet time, quiet time with the NFL. And uh, all of a sudden, my, my heart jumps out of rhythm. This is about 10 o'clock at night. My heart jumps out of rhythm. And I was like, oh, well, that's weird. That'll go away in a couple minutes. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry about that. Uh, I thought hey, it'll go away in a couple minutes. It, never, it, it didn't go away. It didn't go away. And it didn't go away. And it didn't go away. And I knew that something was wrong at about 2 o'clock in the morning when it was still going strong. And, uh, at about four 30 in the morning, I just couldn't take anymore. I was dead, tired, exhausted, not only just because I'd been up all night, but because when your heart's beating out of rhythm like that, you feel like you've ran in a marathon Yeah, and you're just, cause you're, you're, you have an accelerated heart rate and it's just kind of, you know, you feel like I always ex- explain it this way. If you ever watch a bird in a cage who doesn't want to be in a cage and is just fluttering all around the place and just bashing into the walls. That's what I, I envision this looks like because that's what it feels like. That's a good analogy, yeah. I... And, and uh, so at about 4.30 in the morning, almost 5 o'clock, I think I went and woke up my wife and she said, who was, by the way, pissed. And I do mean pissed. I didn't wake her up earlier. Um, sure. I can, I, she's like, I can relate like, to that probably. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I can't falter, I, you know. <laughs> but uh, so I went to the hospital and I got admitted into the hospital and, you know, 24-hour um, you know, observation type thing and make sure that I was okay. And that was the first time I ever had my heart stopped. Uh, so that was cool. Um, so technically I think I've been dead on a, on a, on a table there, I think seven times, all seven or eight times all in total. Um, cause you know, technically your heart stops for a minute. And so, <laughs> gosh, uh, but, uh, yeah. And then, uh, a couple weeks later, I was back at work, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm sitting there at work, and my left hand goes numb, and oh, it goes my my left arm all the way up my shoulder into my jaw, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm too young for this crap." But being the stubborn young huh. man that I was, I decided that I did not need an ambulance. I drove myself to my doctor's office, a half hour in the opposite direction of the hospital, only to get put into the 
back of an ambulance and, yeah, and get sure. shoved nitroglycerin down your throat. But here's the thing. If you don't need nitroglycerin, don't ever take nitroglycerin. <laughs> because what it does is it, 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 it explodes your blood vessels wide open so that you know sure, blood can right. go through and all that. Because just in case of a blockage or anything along those lines. So, you know, come to find out, it was just the same issues I've been dealing with and uh, some other things. And uh, the uh, the arrhythmia had triggered, and I didn't realize it, but I had a hiatal hernia as well. And that triggered the hiatal hernia, which um, attacks smooth muscle, and your heart is a smooth muscle, so it makes it, yeah, imitates a heart attack. Man. So... Uh, when you don't need it, it, you when on the come down, I, have, I think of, of four nitro pills because they're like, is that working yet? I'm like, no, no. And then, here's another one. Here's How about that one? one? Is that one working? No, here's another one. Um, I had the world's worst migraine. Holy crap. I, I mean, I can only imagine. <laughs> that was absolutely awful. Um, but so what ended up happening is that uh, in, I think it was 2006 to 2008, somewhere in there was there was a recession and during that recession the company that i was working for laid me off because it was a small company and i'd only been there for about a year and completely understood i was of course upset at the time because you know here i was uh three kids um and you know house payment two car payments and i just got laid off but you know, it was honestly the best thing that could have happened because I wouldn't have been able to continue working anyway because the the heart issue had gotten so long and so strong that I had to have something done. And it, it took two years to go through the process. And so for two years, I could barely walk from one end of the house to the other end of the house Gosh. without being absolutely winded, just dead exhausted. There was no way I would have been able to work the 60 hours a week that I was accustomed to working at my at the company I was working for. Um, and so what happened is that when all this was going down, so here I am, I, I'm, I'm already had struggling in mental health in other ways. Here I am sitting on a couch feeling completely worthless. I can't hardly walk across from one side of the house to the other. I'm, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm being a good husband. I don't feel like I'm being a good father. I don't feel like I'm being a good provider for my family. And again, you know, the stigma of the macho male masculinity uh, that that we're raised around tells me all those things that that's why I'm feeling that way because, well, clearly you're you're not very good at this. Right. You're not valid anymore. Yeah. Well, you're not providing in this way, so you're not valid. You're not valuable to your family. Um, And that was honestly a a very hard thing for me to overcome because I took a lot of pride in, in the fact that I worked hard for my for my family and that I was a provider for my family and that I, I did have a very good, well-paying job. And that was very hard for me to take. Absolutely. And, and so whatever depression that I had started with at the beginning of this process, I mean, it was just a roller coaster, uh, just, just straight now. down. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was a pretty dark place by the time we came out of this. Um, you know, fortunately, by the time that that you know, I had the procedure and everything else, I was starting to find other ways to earn money to help the family and and feel valuable again because that, I had my self worth 
so tied into a paycheck and what I was bringing home every week. Yeah. That, that was my value. That was the, in my mind, that was the only value I was bringing to my family. Was, monet- I didn't was see monetary. That. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to be like my natural father and, you know, not provide for my children and, and, and not take care of them and not be there for them. And, you know, and, and when they wanted something, man, making sure that, Hey, I had the money. See, cause here's this monetary thing that I'm yeah. providing every week and then making sure that, that I had some, some part in that. Uh, so that helped suffice, uh, for a little while. I mean, but there was still all these, you know, you know, the nagging doubts of, well, Hey, you didn't, you couldn't hack it or you couldn't deal with this other job. And so now this is why you have this. And so now this is right. Right. I mean, which none of that was true, but that your brain doesn't care about that. Right. I mean, yeah. that, that voice doesn't care. It just wants to no. be heard that, you know, how far can we bring you down this rabbit hole of darkness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I had all of that on my head and on my shoulders uh, when we hit the year 2019. And that's where my daughter uh, came down ill. And I, you know, we, we thought at first that she just had the flu because she was complaining of, of a sore throat and some muscle aches. We thought that she was going through a growth spurt and, and had a cold or the flu. It was springtime in Michigan and it's not uncommon to get head colds and things, uh, sore throats and, you know, a little stuffy sniffly is, you know, or things like that. It just, it happens. Um, and so we really downplayed it that, oh, you know, honey, you know, remember mama just took you shopping and you had to yeah. go get all those new clothes because you're growing. That's why your legs hurt. And, and, you know, I mean, we're we're kind of tall people. My wife is five foot nine. I'm six foot three. Um, you know, my boys are six foot three and six foot six. So, so you know, it's so, yeah, we're, we're, we're tall folk. Um, so it's not uncommon for I mean, I had growing pains. My my boys both had growing pains. Um you know, so it's not uncommon in our family. And uh, so we really thought that's what it was. So yeah. uh, my brothers, uh, one of my brothers is a musician in De- the Detroit area. Uh-huh. And so my son and I, my oldest son and I went to uh, view one of his uh, music videos uh, being taped. And so we went down there to, to check that out and, and see what that was all about and yeah. Oh, this will be cool. This will be fun. This will be great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my wife calls me from there and goes, hey, Kendall's really kind of, uh, I think her health is backsliding. Can you bring her? She's not eating anything. She's not drinking anything. Can you bring her home? So just some Gatorade. Because we were at, she was staying at my in-law's house uh-huh. at the time. So uh, up by the Flint area in Michigan. Um, I said, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll, I'll catch it on the way home. And you know, I brought her a couple little things that I know that she likes to snack on and, you know, junk food wise, because, you know, sure. when you're sick, you don't always have to have the good food. You can have junk right. food, too. It's you just want to eat, right? Yeah. Whatever's getting the calories in your body at that point <laughs> when you're not feeling well is what how I approach it. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, so I told him, I, I told my wife, sure, no problem. Well, by the time I had gotten here, um, she, it hurt for her to walk. Like her legs were in such pain that it hurt for her to walk and she didn't want to eat or drink anything because then she had, would, well, what if I have to go to the bathroom? What, what if I have to bathroom? get up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or um, it just would turn in her stomach because she felt so badly that she was afraid she'd throw up. Uh, so anyway, um, 
we we went through the night. We thought, well, my mother-in-law had been a, a nurse for 25, almost 30 years, I think. And she's like, I don't think this is the flu, guys. I think this is a viral infection. I think, you know, if, if this hasn't gotten better by tomorrow morning, I think you should really look at taking her to the hospital. Went, okay. And that's, yeah. Uh, and so the next morning we got up and she couldn't put any pressure on her legs at all. And so we were just like, okay. Um, I mean, there's a local community hospital by my in-law's house, but it's it's always been, in my opinion, and, and I think it's better now. But I think it was always the kind of place where you went if you needed a, just to put a, a splint on or, you know, get a Band-Aid <laughs> for the cut, maybe some stitches. Not, not as um, serious as you might need at the time. Right. right. But we were an hour away, hour and 10 minutes away from the one of the top five children's hospitals in the United States. And so um, I said, well, we're just going to go there. Uh, you know, because we had had we had taken my oldest son to a couple other hospitals when he was because he had this propensity of thinking that he needed to break his collarbone as a teenager. <laughs> There's a, that's a whole nother story. That's a whole but, nother story. <laughs> uh, but he did, I think, three times. It just the poor kid. He is uh, his left shoulder is a weather vane at this point. He can tell when oh, storms gosh. coming. So anyway, long story short, we we, we you know after some of the bad experiences at some of these smaller community hospitals, we just started saying, you know what, the kids are little. If they're sick, we're just taking them to this children's hospital. They're experts with kids. We're just going to knock it out. Just get it yeah. done. And so we took her there. And, you know, we've only been there for a few minutes and the doctor just looked at us. He goes, yeah, this isn't the flu. This isn't a cold. I don't know what it is, but we're going to need to run some tests. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he says, you know, he got permission to take, you know, do some blood draws and run some tests. And he comes back a few minutes later and he goes, well, I can't confirm what it is yet, but I'm happy to say that it's not MS. I'm like, wait a minute. When was MS on the table? When was on that on the table? That's that was a yeah. little abrupt. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's I mean, that's one of those moments where it's almost like you hear the bell cling in your head, and you're like, okay, paying attention now. What? Yeah. What the heck is going on? Uh, and he came back a little bit later to, and to tell us that she had been diagnosed with Guillain-Barré syndrome, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. an autoimmune response to a viral infection. Yeah. And uh, now some people have very minimalistic responses. They have some leg issues, some leg pains, and, you know, they move along. Some uh, are hospitalized for months on end. Uh, you have to have, you know, they're put on ventilators or they get trached. Uh, it, it can be a very serious condition. Yeah. Now, for us, we spent a grand total of 97 days in the hospital. Gosh. 33 of them were in the ICU. Um, she was on a feeding tube. She was paralyzed from her neck down. Oh, gosh. Uh, we had to have breathing support, oxygen support, and uh, she. We almost lost her twice. Um, once was because she was already having struggles uh, swallowing and, and breathing and 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 things along those lines, and uh, she got an infection uh, in her lungs because. Uh, excuse me, just sorry. Sorry. That's okay. That's what editing's for, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, she got uh, an infection in her lungs because she um, had been eating some watermelon, 
And because of the problems with in her esophagus, she could not feel that it went down into her, her airways. Oh gosh. Uh, so a good chunk of watermelon went down into her lungs and she couldn't tell it. Her body couldn't expel it, you know, and it got stuck in there. Well, it caused an infection and they ended up having to puncture her lung and drain almost three quarters of a liter of infected fluid out of her lungs. Gosh. And, uh, in the meantime, though, what happened was with, because of the way this infection was, was going about it, um, they kept giving her all these different antibiotics, trying to combat the what was the going infection. on, right? Yeah. yeah. And so when this one didn't work, they would go. They kept going up the food chain, and they finally got to one where they'd have to come in and check her vision every ten minutes to make sure that she wasn't going blind because it was such a strong antibiotic. It was such a strong guy. Anyway, which is always a very peaceful thing for a parent to hear. Yeah, that's a little. Uh, um, that's not yeah. what you want to hear. Yeah, I'm like, we're already having enough problems. Holy crap, can we back that down? Um, so yeah, so so ended up uh two things happened from this whole this whole lung puncture and all these antibiotics. First things first, it, it uh destroyed lung function and so she's basically running on one and about a quarter lungs right now. Um that's all the lung function she has left. Which, you know, she can go about her life just fine. With that, I mean, as long as she's not planning on being like a you know an Olympic marathon runner, she should be just fine. Um, and then the other issue was that it shut down her kidneys like completely, and we had to go back. We would that put us back into the ICU, yeah. and we had other struggles with uh, her kidneys and getting her the the numbers down into. Uh, safe levels where it wasn't now toxifying her body. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, there was all that. And then, you know, there was, it was one of those things where we, we would leave the ER and then we'd go to the um, rehabilitation hospital, just a couple blocks away. That's right. Yeah. And then something would happen and we'd be right back. Go right back across the street. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, we, we, yeah, we had two or three trips back and forth. And so my wife and I didn't leave the hospital. She, I, well, she didn't leave at all. I left for two nights because we had two boys at home. Sure. And I was like, well, yeah. I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend a couple that. nights with them. My mother-in-law was gr- very awesome. And she came up and she spent those 97 days at my house with my boys. One who was a senior in high school, one who was a freshman in high school. And you know, uh, help keep them on the, you know, make sure they had clean clothes and food and, <laughs> you know, that, uh, it wasn't turning into Lord of the flies at my house. I was going to say just, just in case they turned into, you know, yeah. real teenagers at that point. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so my mother-in-law was there. And so a couple of times I decided I was going to go home, but each time I went home, something bad happened. And I found myself, you know, breaking every speed law known to man to get back to the hospital. Cause it was 40 minutes from our house. And so after that, we just decided to stay because uh, the rehabilitation hospital had uh, like a hotel attached to the hospital. Attached to it. Yeah. Yeah, So for people who were there for long-term stays could stay with their family, especially for the pediatric wing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just, I just started staying there. And so, uh, you know, a couple things happened and, and I, you know, and I, 
I didn't realize the impact that these things had on me till later. Um, and, and so we get home from the hospital. And so there, after, after we're discharged and we're, we're coming to the realization that we still have to go back to the hospital for a few things. Sure. Um, you know, some post tests and making sure that everything, you know, follow ups and all that kind of stuff. And we still, we still, to this day, three years removed from the hospital, meet with a specialist once a month to double check her numbers, making sure Just everything's sure. going. Sure. Yeah. 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 That everything's going, you know, smoothly and at least okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I realized that I, I was a problem for me when we came home from the hospital I didn't realize it, but I was dealing with PTSD. Um, I couldn't sleep at night. I had to, I would sit outside her bedroom door and check her to make sure that she was check okay. Her. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I was, um, if I did sleep, it was, I had the same nightmare for three months straight, every single night, the same yeah. exact nightmare. Uh, it was all centered around one of the nights that we, we nearly lost her. And I just, I saw that, that whole scenario just played in my mind over and over and over again. But one of the other things that happened is when, when all these things are happening in a hospital and your, your child's life is in danger, one of the things that at least I never really paid attention to until I realized it was a problem later. And it's one of the things I'm working on now in counseling, in therapy is that I did not like the sound of things that beep because you know what, when your daughter's destatting and everything, there's things that beep and chime and ding and everything's going off all around you. And so when I hear things that beep and chime and ding, it it just sends me right like instantly right right back to that moment. And so I'm, I'm working on, on trying to get through those things uh, with my counselor and trying to find ways to accept the fact that, that there are reasons and acceptable reasons why some things why some need things to chime. That, yeah. You know, like the microwave. It's okay that the microwave chimes at the end yeah. to let you know that your popcorn's done or whatever, you know? Um, and those are things they like, you know, you, you can't, you can't plan for, you know, like you don't, you don't know that that's going to be something that impacts you later on, you know, in right. a scenario, you know, whatever, however severe the the, the condition is like, you're, you could be as strong willed as you think, and then be blindsided by something seemingly exactly. minor. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And, and, and even with that, I was still the strong, I don't need therapy. I can push through this. I'm a man. <laughs> um, what convinced me of the fact that I needed therapy and that I needed to reach out, I needed help from somebody else. We had to go back to the hospital where the, the children's hospital, where the ICU was. And by the way, and I've said this several different times, and I've talked to a couple other people about this. If you know somebody who works in an ICU, whether it's uh, the NICU, the pediatric ICU, or the adult version of the ICU, please go hug them. Oh, Those yeah. people oh, are, are rock stars in the, in the medical field. Uh, they see things on on a day to day basis that most people don't ever have to see, and, and um, wouldn't want to. If you and ask wouldn't them. want to, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, these. So we thought, you know, what would be kind of cool. We saw these guys running around with all these little drink cups and things, and and I do I design logos for you know uh, a living and and sell graphic T shirts for a living and all that kind of stuff, and, and so I thought, well, you know what, I'm gonna design a logo for Kendall, and we're gonna put it on these mugs. 
uh, as a way to say thank you. So we we bought all these little drink mugs for, that they were, you know, they're the kind with the the the, the plastic cups with the the straws and the lids and oh yeah uh, yeah yeah, and so the tumblers I think they're called, and so we bought a whole bunch of those. Just yeah, we made some we made some salesman's day, and uh, <laughs> we had them all lettered up and and all these things, and we took them to the hospital. And when you pull into the hospital, there's this big circle drive there, like yep. a horseshoe drive for you know people to drop off people to get, you know, attention, you know, uh, or visitors or things like that. And we were walking up to the front gates and we were giving our vehicle to the valet person to go park the car. And I, excuse me, I turn, I turn and picked up the boxes out of the back of the car and went to go walk in the hospital and I froze. I had a, a meltdown panic attack right then and there. I could not move. Yeah, I was locked up tighter than a drum and I just started crying and I could not stop crying. Could not. I, there was nothing I could do. Yeah. It would not stop. The, le- and, the levy, the levy broke and you, you. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the thought of reentering that hospital and going back up to the room to the, the ICU floor where my daughter had almost died twice. Just pushed me over the edge. And here, and here it is for a completely it's still related in you know reason but yeah. totally different you know feelings you know this one's more yeah. of a a positive you know happy yeah it was should a, be. it was a positive yeah it was it was more of a positive visit but your brain doesn't care about that your no, brain says hey absolutely. this is where all that this is where all that bad stuff happened yeah and and so i walked i went to go in and, and i just could i could not i could not step into the hospital um it was and, and when my wife came back out, I just looked at her and said, oh, "Okay, maybe I need to talk to somebody." Yeah, that was that was and that's the breaking a huge step. It that's is a, a huge, huge step, thing to then, say, you know. And and I wish that I would have acknowledged the fact because because here's the thing: if your friends and your family members are asking you to go talk to somebody, you need to talk to somebody. They see it; they see the pain and the agony yeah. and, and everything that you're going through. They're trying to be nice about it and they're trying to be kind and they're trying yeah. to to help you with all these different things. But, you know, uh, in our own stubbornness and our own pride, we push them away instead of acknowledging the help that we need. Yeah. And, you know, who knows? Maybe I would have been able to nip those nightmares in the bud if I would have jumped on this right away when we left the hospital. Maybe, um, you know, three years removed, I wouldn't be I wouldn't need headphones to fall asleep at night so that I don't hear things beep and chime. But, you know, you, know, you never know right? at the same time, yeah. right? I mean, well, exactly. Like I mean, it's the little things that, that sneak up on you that you weren't, you know, fully aware of or didn't think would be an issue that all of a sudden are, are there in your face. Yeah, that very much become an issue. And so I, I've gotten to the point where anytime I talk to anybody about mental health, my first question is, is, you know, are you talking to somebody? Yeah. Have you talked to somebody? And if they say no, my question is, why not? Why not? What do you, what do you think is going to happen? You know, it, it's not, it's not the, what you see to having a, a, a good counselor and sitting across from them is not like what you see in the movies where you're laying on a couch <laughs> and holding the pillow and telling them that why you didn't get the right bike for your 13th birthday. You know, it, it's, it's not that. Yeah. 
if your counselor is a good counselor, you're, you're having a conversation. You're having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It's not just, well, how did that make you feel? Well, what, what was your response to this? I mean, that question does come up from time to time because it is a valid question in the right aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not the right question if that's the only question they got, (laughs) you know, if that's the only, that's, if that's the only uh, bullet they got in the gun, then then you need a different (laughs) counselor. time to find another therapist. Yeah, absolutely. But you can have a a valid conversation with a counselor that, that where they ask you that question and it should be asked at some point because how else are they going to get to know the answers? But I found myself, you know, being able to sit down across from somebody and, uh, you know, it was kind of funny. Um, the other thing that convinced me to go is that, so our specialist the, the, the deals with my daughter's health, uh, he's a really cool doctor and we talked to him and I, I'm able to talk to him a little openly about things. And so I was sitting there talking with him after, uh, or during one of my daughter's visits. And when we got done and and uh, he excused my wife and my daughter and he asked me to stay for a minute longer. And he just looked at me and goes, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? Oh, yeah, I'm fine, fine. You know, you give all the, you give that one awesome word. Yeah, I'm fine. Yep. I wasn't fine. And he, he knew was. it. He could see through it. And he goes, are you talking to anybody? No, why would I? Again, well, you should be. You you, you need to talk to somebody, Tim. You're not, you, you know, you're not sleeping. You're not, I could tell you're not sleeping. I could tell you're not yourself. Okay. Now my wife had been had been after me for a while, and I was like, "No, I'm not going to do it." But he, he, for whatever reason, and it's not that I didn't respect my wife, or I don't respect my wife, or and I don't know why it was different coming from him, but it was, and nice. and I went, "Oh, okay, well maybe that's something I need to do." And then yeah. it was shortly after that that we went to the hospital, you know. But it was kind of um, we went to the hospital. And I had that, that that panic attack. Yeah. But one of the things that he told me is like he said, "Look." Because I, I was afraid that, you know, I was going to have to go back and talk about all my family history and which, uh, you know, there are soap operas that have less drama than my family history. <laughs> and he's like, no, that probably won't even come up. They're going to just want to. And my first, first visit, she's like, well, tell me about your family history. I was like, son of a. Son. And <laughs> so I went back and I told him he was a liar. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's so. You, and, and and I know that it matters who we talk to about this, yeah. but in the very but in the very first couple little bits, if you just need to get something off your chest, it almost doesn't matter who you talk to. Just that you are talking and that you are that you're giving that that pain, that hurt, that trauma, that de- depressive state, and you're sharing that with somebody else who can who can at least listen. They may not have all the answers, but at least they can listen and say, "Hey, this is what's going on. Maybe we need to." to veer it this way. Maybe this is the avenue that we need to look at now. And that's something important to, to realize too, you know, is that, Oh yeah. You know, we all have, we all have that, that part of our, our human side, whether we, you know, let it shine or not, that we do want to, to help and fix things. It's exactly. just knowing, knowing that, okay, here's, here's where my limit stops. Tim still needs needs something where can I direct it to the next stage that he right. might listen to, you know, and on the right. other end, you know, you have to be receptive to say, okay, they're, they, they are not quitting on me. They just, they do care about what's going on and, and care about my well being. They just, they just realize that they can't, but somebody else can. That's, that's a hard step too. It is, it is. It's, you know, because, you know, and, and a lot of times as men too, we don't want to, 
we don't want to admit to our wives or our spouses or our partner, um, however that applies to your particular situation, uh, that we are less than. Sure. That there is something that we need help getting fixed with because, again, the environment that we most of us have grown up around in, in, the, in the United States is that you know, men are to be manly men and we're to be masculine and we're to be all these things. And when you're not inside that perfectly crafted little box, it becomes an issue uh, for ourselves and trying to, you know, get over that hill. But sometimes you have to realize that, you know, sometimes a weight is easier pushed when you have a second person next to you. Absolutely. Just because you need help doesn't mean you're not worth helping, right? Exactly. And it doesn't mean you're not worthy. You know, uh, you know, when you, when you think about it, when you're trying to push something heavy and, you know, asking somebody else to come give you a hand, it doesn't mean that, you you know, you're not strong enough. It means that this was just too big of an issue for one just person. Just too big of an issue, right. You know, and that's a lot of times, you know, and that's one of the things I had to like kind of wrap my head around was it wasn't that I was unworthy. It wasn't that I was less than. It wasn't that I was you know, not enough mentally, emotionally, or whatever, all these things. I, it was just too big. There were too many issues and there were, some of them were just too big for me to deal with on my own. Yeah. And I needed, I, and one of the things that I've, I've enjoyed about, you know, podcasting for myself, you know, is that I've been able to talk to people of all different walks and, and, and uh, of life and different backgrounds and all these different things. People have gone through all these different occurrences yeah. in life. And one of the things I have, I have really has really helped me, and I've really grown to love, is perspective. Absolutely. Um, because even though we may have similar issues, how you look at it, how I you approach it. it, how you deal with it, you know, may, you, the way that you deal with it may be completely different. And I found that many times in talking with people and hearing their stories and how they have gone forward in their life, is that I'm learning something, and I'm going, oh, okay, so it's. What if I did this thing? Yeah. What if I tried it their way? And sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, like anything else, um, you you're trying. You're, you're, yeah. you're trying to move forward. You got the car and drive. You got it out of neutral. You're trying to move <laughs> forward, you know. And, and so I, I, that's a great thing. So just to kind of to wrap things up here in, in a yeah. semi-neat ball, maybe the bow is sitting somewhere else and you forgot the scotch tape, but where where would you say you are now um in your your path of of healing and what's the one takeaway that you'd like to to gift other people that are listening um to to kind of swallow and say oh okay that's a that's a sustainable piece of advice that i can take home well i just honestly i just re-entered therapy I, i was i was out of therapy for a little while And I, you know, because I had told myself that I was okay. And uh, there were still some things that I was trying to deal with that I needed, I needed to talk with somebody and just kind of lay it out on the table and, and, and sort it all out. And so trying to wrap my head around some of these things, because my daughter's health condition had changed so drastically where I, I, again, I was struggling with my own version of masculinity and what it was uh, because I've gone from working, you know, now I'm, 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 I'm barely working. I'm a, I'm a stay at home dad. I have been for years. I work from home, but my hours have been greatly reduced. And so kind of wrapping my head around again, 
what am I bringing to the table? Where is my mm-hmm. worth? Where's my value uh, in this current new normal? And uh, by the way, I hate that saying. I don't know why I just said it, but I hate <laughs> saying my new normal because we got so used to, you know, it, that got so overused, I think, the first little bit when we came out of the hospital. But anyway, so to long and short is I'm back in therapy because there's things that I need some help with and trying to come to that recognition of it again and and dealing with it. But I I think the biggest thing that if I can just advise anybody is therapy is something that doesn't ever really stop. And I'm trying to remind myself of that is that whether you're going to a counselor, whether you've gotten to a point with a counselor that you you can now take these things and you can do it on your own, you're still giving yourself therapy, learned therapy, uh, and things like that. And don't be afraid and don't be too proud to go back when you need the therapy. Don't be too proud to sit there and go, well, I did it once. I don't need to do it again. Because I think for many people, that's a fallacy that, that, that they fall into is that, well, I did it once for this long. I should be fine. I don't ever need to, I don't ever need to do that thing again. And unfortunately that's not the way life works, especially over the last three years. Sweet Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, be, if it hadn't been for uh, my daughter's health, we still would have had a global pandemic. We still would have had quarantine. Yeah. We still would have had separation from other people and all these other issues that have been floating around the world for the last couple of years. You know? Uh, so yeah, it's, Listen when somebody says you need therapy or listen when somebody says they care and they want to help and listen to yourself when you know that you need to go back. When we treat boys as men and teach them to be emotionless, tough and secure, we strip them of their innocence and we place unrealistic and unhealthy expectations on them. In both our education system and at home, we need to help boys and men label their feelings and understand them. By approaching this in a non-judgmental, curious way, we can eliminate the fears surrounding therapy and mental health. We need men to be role models for the new generation. And it all starts with teaching boys to not be men, but to be humans. This should not be a gender issue. And once we make this a human issue, toxic masculinity, in my opinion, will fade. Because toxic masculinity is something that still needs to be addressed. And the only way to help men learn that emotions don't devalue them or make them weak is by instilling that mindset within them from a young age. The dangers of toxic masculinity are clear. And as a society, it's important to remember that everyone is human. And finding healthy ways to process emotions is important for all of us. Special thanks to Tim for sitting down and being so open with his struggles and his life story. What's Your Story is produced by me, JD, with music by Chad Lawson. The stories, though, they're entirely yours. So if you've got a story you want to share, you can do so by heading to fragilemoments.org slash tellyourstory. But most of all, thanks to you, the listener, for tuning into this brand new show and helping me shed some much-needed light on mental illness. 
If there's something that resonated with you in today's episode, don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter or by leaving the show a review. Last but not least, though, take a moment and sign up for the newsletter over on the website, FragileMoments.org, where you'll get free mental health advice directly to your inbox. Take care of yourself out there, and be sure to check in with your friends and family. All of them. Namaste.